All right, ladies, we're going to get started. Uh, if you didn't grab yourself some dessert and want to still do that, feel free to go grab you something. And if you want to get something while we're talking to you, you won't bother me at all to get up and get you some coffee or drink of water or something. Sorry to interrupt y'all, but <coughs> I didn't know what to do. Like, How do I block this? Um, so yeah, you should have some notes on, uh, some blank notes pages on your table, as well as some lyrics for something we'll do at the end of the message. Um, so you can get that out and get your pen, get your Bibles out. If you've got those, either your heart, who still, who still has hard copy Bibles with them? Are the senior ladies doing that still? All right, there you go. We have some non-hard copy senior ladies though. We got some phones. All right, nice. Nice, there you go, there you go. There you go. That's good. Trendy. <clears throat> Lightweight. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, good morning. Glad to see you. Glad to be here with you. Uh, it's an absolute joy to get to be asked to come and do this. So, Belinda, thank you for asking me to come. Um, it was a wonderful time. I, I got to have, I don't remember when that was, sometime last year, I got to come and speak during y'all's uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, or the, the Beatitudes sermon. Um, oh, thank you, Miss Brenda. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Um, but I'm looking forward to our time this morning where we're going to consider Yahweh Shalom. That's an M. It's kind of getting cut off there, but that's Yahweh Shalom. Um, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I know I met a couple of you guys. Uh, I didn't get a chance to come say hey yet to you guys. But uh, my name is Eric Schmaltz, and I am married. I'm on staff here. I'll talk about that in a second. But I'm married to my beautiful and heroic and selfless wife, Erin, um, and we, we're going to be celebrating 13 years in August. It's kind of crazy to feel like I'm, I'm able to say that, like that's a, that's a big accomplishment. Uh, we've got four kiddos named Aiden, who's nine, and Cameron, who's seven, and Ethan, who's four, and then my little baby girl, Lennon, who will turn one on May 3rd. Uh, so we have a full household, a full load going on in the Schmaltz house. Uh, we also have a 19-year-old who's living with us right now. Her name's Keaton. Uh, she's from the Sovereign Grace Church in Crestview, Florida. Uh, she is just here in New Orleans, just trying to discover if the Lord's calling her to move here and to be a part of our church family. And so she, while she's figuring that out and testing the water some, she's living with Aaron and I. So just a full house, a lot, lot going on in our household. Um, I'm on staff here full-time at the church, and among other things like helping administratively and uh, in the office and uh, recently just getting to, to seek to serve our college students uh, here at the church. I, I also get the honor of getting to lead us in song on Sunday mornings uh, when we're gathering together. Um, and if I can just take a moment to, to talk about that for a second, it's just something that's really dear to my heart. It, it's a privilege to get to sing together uh, with you guys uh, every Sunday morning. We get to come and declare to the Lord and to one another uh, our affection for Him and our allegiance to Him. We get to fill our minds with, uh, with truth and our mouths with the truth of God. And that, when we come on Sundays, it just helps us to put God in his proper place. We get to do that week, week after week together. And just what a necessity that Sunday gathering is for us. We need it. And, and I hope you feel that um, as, a, as a member of our church or if you go to another church, a member of your own church. Um, I don't know about you, but I can sometimes feel like by Wednesday or Thursday in the week, um, I could just be so overwhelmed by the cares of this world that, that I like look into the mirror of my soul and all I can see is just chaos everywhere. Uh, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I, I just 
be aware of all the spiritual ditches that I fell into that week. Uh, I can be reminded of all the temptations to doubt God and to doubt his word that I chose to believe that week. I can be disoriented by hurtful comments and insults that people have made about me or about those I love. I can be driven to the point of madness almost uh, as I compare my life to the life that I view others seeming to get to experience that I wish I had. You know, if I could just get the, the kind of money that they have or the kind of comforts that they have or be in the shape that they are in or have the level of health that they have or their reputation or, or maybe even just at their pace of life or, you know, I'm thinking for you guys, you know, looking around and maybe you are tempted to think, if I could just have my children and my grandchildren love me like those children and grandchildren love their mom and grandmother, uh, the sight of our sinfulness can just sink us in a second. Um, but then we gather on Sunday mornings and we sing together. Uh, and, and there's something glorious that happens when we do that. We, when we lift the name of Jesus high upon our lips. Uh, we stir our affections, uh, our perspectives are shifted and sharpened, our souls are refreshed, and the very presence of our holy God is with us. He's singing over us, his bride, the church. And then we look back into that same mirror of our soul, and this time, as we peer into it, we're doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Jesus, and we don't see a frazzled, exhausted lunatic, <laughs> uh, filthy and tattered. No, no, instead we see ourselves as God sees us as a sanctified saint, clothed in the blood-cleansed, pure, white robes of the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And what we experience in that moment on Sundays while we're standing with the church, singing together, I'm looking down there because that's where we do it, um, we experience peace in that moment. Peace with God. We experience the peace of God. Peace. Such a soothing word, isn't it? You hear that word, and, and you, just, you just, like, want some of it. Whatever, whatever that is, I want it. Uh, I mean, it's probably the human longing of the soul to be at peace. Just think about the categories in your life. Think about your relationships with your spouse, if you have one, if you're, with your siblings, with your children, with your grandchildren. Just think if you had peace in those relationships. Or finances, the management of your finances, your your future security, or maybe just your, your current stability. What if, what if you could get peace in that thing? Or your health, current issues, health issues, or maybe you're afraid of future health issues. Maybe you've got family members who have health issues. Um, need some peace. Or safety, just your own safety. And the news is telling us all the time about just awful stuff that's going on. And um, we're prone every day to be tempted by fears and anxieties and worry. With each of these categories, we could be tempted to think that if, if we could just experience some measure of peace, then life would feel so different for us, wouldn't it? But what exactly is peace? What is that? And why does it seem to be so elusive to us? <laughs> Can anybody actually find it or experience it here on earth? Is that a reasonable expectation for us to actually experience peace on earth? And if so, then where should we look for it? Well, there's an ancient word from the Middle East that captures the essence of this word peace. And in Hebrew, it's the word shalom. So S-H-A-L-O-M, shalom. It's a dense word. Uh, it's a word that's packed with meaning. It includes words like calm, tranquility, order, relational harmony, well-being, wholeness, a sense of flourishing. As one author put it, shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. 
I think that's a helpful way to think of the word peace. Peace is the way things ought to be. Because that's what we really want. Isn't I mean, I mean, when it comes down to it, that's the kind of peace that we're looking for. Because we believe that there is a way that things ought to be. And, and we believe that sometimes very passionately, that they ought to be a certain way. And in fact, what often causes conflict among us is that those around us also very passionately think things ought to be a certain way. And when things don't go the way that they think they ought, then we become restless or frustrated or anxious or angry, even contentious. We convince ourselves that if we could just get everyone else to see the way things ought to be, through our perspective, of course, then finally we'd all experience some peace around here. But I think we need to take a step back and ask ourselves a simple question. Who determines shalom? Who really has the authority to say how things ought to be? Who defines peace? If Peter, Pastor Peter, did his job in y'all's first meeting... Uh, then you already know the answer to, that qu- to those questions about who defines peace. I am does. Yahweh, the sovereign one, the Lord, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. The one who has the entire universe under his command. Yeah, him, he, he determines shalom. Not us. He's the only one with the right to tell us what ought to be. And his authority extends all the way from the complexities of the vast heavens to the anxieties in your very heart. And this is the Yahweh Shalom that we want to consider this morning. The Lord is peace. So I'm hoping this morning that we'll be freshly aware, we'll be made freshly aware of this God, uh, this Lord of peace. So before we get into the word, let's pray. Just ask the Lord to be with us and to speak to us. Lord, I am a willing vessel, um, but as you know, and as I know, Lord, just a weak one, uh, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit this morning as we consider your word and uh, speak to us from it, O oh Lord. Guide my thoughts. Uh, minister your peace to us, God, we pray. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. Lord, we want our souls to find rest in you this morning. So be here among us, we pray. Amen. All right, so go ahead and flip over in your Bibles to the book of Judges or do a couple of taps to get there to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament, right after Joshua and right before Ruth. And as you're getting there, I just want to say, in case you're familiar with the book of Judges, uh, you might be wondering why I would be choosing such a depressing and gory book to preach from for a senior ladies meeting, uh, especially meeting on the topic of God's peace. But rest assured, we're, we're going to steer clear of all those really gory and gruesome stories that are found in the book of Judges, because there are plenty of them. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time in Judges chapter 6, uh, so you can go there. And we're going to focus our attention on a man named Gideon, uh, who's probably one of the more famous judges. I, I'd imagine that most of us in the room have at least heard of Gideon. Uh, you've prob- you're probably really familiar with him. You've probably studied him yourself, um, if you've been a Christian for a while. Uh, you probably would be, uh, some of the stories about him that would be more familiar to you would be the story of him using a piece of fleece uh, to ask the Lord to show him a sign. Uh, or maybe the battle that he led with just 300 men and conquered the Midianites. Um, but he, Gideon was a judge that was appointed and sent by God to rescue the nation of Israel from the oppression of its Canaanite enemies. And this morning we're going to look at how, uh, how we're first introduced to Gideon in this chapter, in chapter 6. So to get our bearings before we, we jump into chapter 6, Joshua, leader of Israel, he had just led the people into the promised land of Canaan. So that happened 
just previous to Judges. Uh, they fought a bunch of battles. They had begun to take over the promised land. So they started to do this conquest of the land of Canaan. But God reminded them of the source of their victory, which is namely himself, like I'm the source of your victory, and had warned them to obey the law, to love him, and very importantly, to not mix with the nations among Canaan. Joshua 23 says this, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. So he's being really clear. This is how this is going to happen. I'm going to do this. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong. Here's his warning. Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. He's like covering all the bases. But this is what you should do. You shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. So there's God's warning to them as they're as they're preparing to, to continue taking over this land. But alas, the Israelites do exactly what God warned them not to do. Uh, they fail to cling to the God, uh, to, uh, fail to cling to God, and therefore they fail to obey His instruction to them. Though they do win some strategic wars, uh, they allow the Canaanites to remain with them in the Promised Land, and thereby they fail to fully carry through with God's intention for them. And that, man, that just sets them up for many difficult and devastating years that are going to follow, uh, suffering at the hands of the people in the land of Canaan, because they didn't do what God told them to do, uh, at least not fully. But thankfully, time and time again, God has pity on his people and offers them respite through a judge who would liberate them from the hands of their enemies. And this is the book of Judges. We see this cycle repeat itself several times in the book. Uh, it goes like this. God's people do what's evil in his sight. God gives them over to the hand of their enemies. The people cry out to the Lord for deliverance. God has pity on them and sends a judge to rescue them out of oppression. And then the people have peace in the land. And then you'd think, okay, so that's the end of the story. No, they do that over and over and over again uh, in this book. And that's where we're landing this morning when we get to chapter 6. We're, we're in that cycle. The people of Israel just coming off of a period of 40 peace-filled years in the land. But they, again, choose to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so as a punishment, God, it says in verse 1, that God gives them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now, the Midianites, they were, they were plunderers. They're bullies. They, they'd pull up to your house uh, or your tent or whatever you had back then, and they'd, they'd literally devour everything you owned. Uh, they'd steal your livestock. They'd eat all your produce. And then they'd be like, all right, see you guys next year. And the next year would come around and they'd do the same thing again to you. They'd, they'd, all the crops that you had grown, they'd just come and they'd devour it like locusts. And they did this for seven whole years, the Bible tells us. So naturally, the Israelites, um, they're, in a, they're in turmoil. They're devastated. They, they are afraid of these Midianites. Um, so they, what they do is they, they run away. The Midianites run the Israelites away into the countryside, into the mountains. Uh, and they dwell in the caves and they set up strongholds there because they're afraid. They're fearful of these guys. During these years, it was a life of constant fear and disappointment and destruction. Definitely not a peaceful life. And that's when we get to the passage we're going to look at this morning, which starts in verse 11. And this is the call of Gideon. 
Uh, so if you guys would read along with me, not out loud, but just follow along as I read. Starting in verse 11. <clears throat> now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said, Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. We'll stop there for a second. So let's just make sure we got the scene set in our minds. It's anything but peaceful. We already kind of clarified that. Gideon is spending yet another exhausting day hiding at the bottom of a wine press, uh, which would have been this big hole in the ground that they dump grapes in and they trample inside them. So he's down inside this wine press. Uh, it's, it's the desert, so it's probably not a very cool place in there. Uh, and he's beating the chaff off this wheat. And he's doing this secretly, harvesting this wheat, because he doesn't want the Midianites to know that he's doing it so that they won't come and steal it from him. And, you know, doing, doing the beating of the wheat and the chaff, I mean, the, the beating of the chaff off the wheat down in a wine cellar is not the way you want to do that. They relied on the wind so much to do this. So there's no wind when you're down inside of a little tunnel. So it's extremely difficult to do what Gideon is doing. And he's no doubt tired and restless, sweating. He's probably sore from doing this. I mean, he's been doing this for seven years, days like this. And there's no end in sight in, uh, for Gideon. So I, can't ima- I can imagine he might be tempted with a thought like, you know, this is the promised land, for crying out loud. This is what's supposed to be the land where it's flowing with milk and honey. This was to be the peaceful place that our nation had longed for for centuries. Where is this Yahweh our fathers told us about? I would have been tempted to think like that. And then in stark contrast to, to Gideon's restlessness, the Bible describes a much different attitude for this, char- this other character that's in the story, the angel of the Lord. And this character says, just kind of calmly, <laughs> calmly enters the scene and nestles himself down in the shade of a tree on Gideon's father's property like he's got no care in the world. I'm sure Gideon's really aware of what this, what this guy looks like and how different it is from him. And just, just a quick note about the angel of the Lord. We see that, uh, this character oftentimes in the Old Testament and a lot of places we see him. Uh, and many theologians have come to agree that they think that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. So this would be the, one of the members of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, coming in human flesh before he came as a baby, uh, a theophany, um, which is like a, a showing of God himself. And so just keep that in mind as we're, as we're thinking. And so in, in the passage, we, we see angel of the Lord, and sometimes we see the Lord. And so that's, that's why you see that is because this is probably Jesus pre-incarnate coming and meeting with Gideon. Um, Gideon has no idea who this is at first. Um, but anyway, so he, he proceeds to warmly greet Gideon. You know, the Lord is with you, <laughs> oh mighty man of valor. It's like ironically, just kind of gives this compliment calling Gideon uh, a mighty man of valor. At least that's how Gideon takes it. I think he probably feels like, you don't know who I am. I'm down here beating this wine, I mean beating this uh, wheat. Why are you calling me a mighty man of valor? 
um, you know, getting, he just doesn't seem at first to get this guy, to know who he is. Uh, he's understandably perplexed by what the man is saying. He's like, what is he talking, what is this guy talking about? Had, had I missed something? Did, I mean, is the Lord doing something? There's not Facebook, there's no news that he can turn on. Maybe the Lord's doing something in the land, and I didn't know. Um, and he doesn't consider himself a mighty man of valor. So he, he seems to have this irritated response that comes out of him toward the angel of the Lord. And it sounds like this, please, if the Lord is with us, then why is all this stuff happening to us? And where are all these promises that we've been told about? Uh, so he's got a little bit of an attitude toward him. Uh, and just make sure you see what's happening here. What Gideon is doing is he is focused on the difficulty of his circumstance. And he's so focused on that that he fails to see that the Lord is not only still with the nation of Israel, but he's in fact standing right in front of him. And Gideon has, has the, does not have the wherewithal to realize that. He's denying the Lord's presence while standing in the Lord's presence. And this is a problem. It's a big problem. It's a problem for us. Probably a problem for you as well. See, from Gideon's perspective, if Yahweh Shalom would have been with him, if he would have understood Yahweh to be with him, then he wouldn't have been hiding in a wine press. And the Midianites, in his mind, he thinks the Midianites wouldn't be ruling over the Israelites. If Shalom were here, if Yahweh was here, that wouldn't be happening. And God's promises for peace and safety, we already would have realized all that stuff if the Lord really were here. And so that's the way Gideon's thinking, and it's an incorrect way for him to think, and I think the Lord's going to adjust him. Gideon's thinking, that's the way things ought to be. They ought to be like that. That's what peace would look like. He'd heal my body. He'd save my grandchild. He'd bring peace and order into my life in that really difficult category that I'm facing. That, that's what my life ought to look like. That's what Gideon's saying. And this is how we contend to accuse God of not being with us. But Gideon was, he was just totally incorrect in his assessment. God had given them over to the hand of Midian, um, which was true. That did happen. Uh, and, and yeah, that did lead the Israelite people uh, to, into a season of unrest and disorder. Uh, so he, what he was experiencing, it was not like he was, he was misunderstanding the experience of, what, of the difficulty. But what Gideon failed to remember was the reason for this unrest and disorder. Just before this encounter in, in chapter 6 with Gideon at the wine press, God had, had again, that he, like he had done several times before, he had answered the cry of the Israelites. And, and we see in verse 7, if you look there in verse 7, this is how he did that. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord, this is what he did, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, basically, did this isn't happening accidentally. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I, so to speak, drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but, and this is the reason, you have not obeyed my voice. This is what Gideon forgot. This is what he was not aware of. God chose to discipline Israel because Israel chose to disobey God. So there's a reason for this. And that's what Gideon forgot. He forgot 
his own people's and his own selves' contribution to the circumstance they were facing. God had, in fact, been patient and long-suffering with his people. God himself had empowered the Israelites to drive out the enemies of the land. And as God, he had the right, we talked about that earlier, to set the terms for what ought to be, for proper obedience to his desires for the acquisition of the promised land. And while he was upholding his end of the agreement, like God was doing that, the Israelites were not. And the Israelites, instead of repenting and joyfully submitting to what God had warned them to do after hearing this prophet come to them, apparently they didn't do anything about it. And God still comes to them. It says, verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came. So God himself comes to the people. He's still pursuing. See the initiation of the Lord. But Gideon resented the discipline of the Lord, and he, he accuses the Lord of being untrustworthy to do what he promised. That's, that's what comes out of Gideon's heart in this moment. He says, God, you've forsaken us. You, don't, you, don't, you aren't with us anymore. You left us to dry. Um, he becomes the judge. He's trying to judge the Lord. So he incorrectly concludes this. And how, how often in our lives do we become short-sighted like this, like Gideon is. We can fail <clears throat> to remember the clear and simple expectations and promises that God has revealed to us through his word. Often, you know, we don't experience the promises of God the way we ought to in our lives because we aren't willing to submit to the way the Lord thinks things ought to be in our lives. And, you know, we don't obey him fully. We half-heartedly read our Bibles we make most Sundays. We'll forgive little offenses that others make against us, but we can't seem to let go of these grudges against the big offenses that people uh, give us. We function as our own little Yahweh shaloms, trying to be our own peacekeepers and peacemakers and attempting to be the sovereign one, managing and manipulating those around us in order to, to get the peace that we crave. I mean, this is what, this is what we're doing. We're trying to function as... As God, and, we, and we, we forsake God when we do that. He doesn't forsake us. It was the same for Gideon in the Israelites. God had promised them peace in the promised land if they would simply and fully obey his word. But they, time and time again, chose to only obey him in part, only part of the way. So just think about your own life. Where, where might you be needing to obey God fully? Where, where might God be putting his finger and saying, in this area of your life, I need full obedience from you? What categories of life are you trying to fight for peace instead of just accepting the circumstances that God has given you and looking to him for peace? Are you denying God's presence in a category in your life? Are you forgetting that he is with you? Where do you need to realign yourself with Yahweh? Shalom. Those are some of the questions I've given you to talk about at your tables uh, later, so you can uh, go back to those in a, in a little bit. Uh, let's look at verse 17, continue with their story. Verse 17, Gideon begins to clue in that this man that he's been talking to isn't just some regular old schmo, uh, that there's something like unique about this guy, and I, I think we can uh, be safe to assume that maybe he's starting to think, maybe this guy's a prophet. You know, he's, he starts to say, my Lord, and then he starts to just say Lord uh, himself to the, to the character. His attitude just seems to shift really dramatically. Uh, so if we look in verse 17, he says, And he said to him, 
if now I have found favor in your eyes, so like there's, there's a respect thing that's happened there that was not there at the very beginning of this interaction. If I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So I think he's cluing in, like maybe the Lord's use it, like speaking through this man to me. Um, please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. So Gideon's saying, I'm going to go run over here and I'm going to do something. I'm going to get something made. I'm going to come bring it to you. So don't leave. Like, stay here. Um, and so the angel of the Lord says, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes, which I can't imagine that that was a quick thing. Like, that, that must have taken some time. Um, from an ephah of flour, the meat he puts in a basket, so he even, like, makes it nice and pretty. And the broth, he put it in a pot and brought them to him, to the angel of the Lord, to the Lord, under the terebinth. Terebinth is like this little tree. Uh, it's like a low tree with a lot of shade under it. So he brings them to this terebinth and presents them to the angel of the Lord. And the angel of God said to him, uh, all right, Gideon, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. <laughs> okay, so that's weird. <laughs> what just happened there? <laughs> I love this verse, verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that's who this guy's been all this time. Um, I could just be like that sometimes. Like, oh, that's what you were doing, Lord. I didn't have any idea. Uh, but then, so Gideon perceives, still in verse 22, and Gideon said, alas, Oh, Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. And in Hebrew, that is Yahweh Shalom. So it says, I've seen Yahweh Shalom. So here, Gideon is again faced with uh, what he is experiencing and what he thinks ought to have been. So uh, but what I mean by that, if we go back to verse 22, uh, so Gideon perceives that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon's response here is, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I looked up the word alas, and alas, when you use that word, I, I didn't know this, but it, it, it's a sense of grief, it's a sense of pity, of shame. Like when you use that word, you're like, alas, I'm caught. <laughs> um, so I, I think the reason Gideon uses that word uh, is, is because he knows that when someone comes face to face with the Lord, it's the last thing they do. <laughs> they don't do anything else after that because they're not here any longer. God told Moses in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. So I think Gideon is fully aware of the reality that should be happening in this next moment. Uh, he would fully have expected God to just strike him dead right there on the spot. And I think that's the grief that he expresses there. Alas, oh Lord God, he's, he's terrified. He knows that literally moments before this, he had accused the all-powerful God of the universe, Yahweh himself, of forsaking Israel. He said that with his mouth to Jesus. Or he didn't know it was Jesus, but to the Lord. Um, Gideon had exposed his own lack of allegiance he had failed to remain faithful, to trust God, to keep the promises he had made. He had denied God's power. He was guilty. And he knew he deserved to die. But what's fascinating is the Lord's response to Gideon. The Lord speaks to him 
He doesn't, he doesn't punish him. He doesn't kill him. He says something to Gideon. And what he says is not judgment. It's not pronouncing a judgment on Gideon. It's not, it's not giving him a sentence. Um, instead, and surprisingly, Yahweh comforts Gideon. He says, peace be to you, Gideon. Do not, be, do not fear. Do not be afraid. You shall not die. I mean, Gideon must not have been able to believe that response. In an instant, in an instant uh, Gideon's entire perspective about himself and the circumstances of the nation of Israel changed. Yes, he had seen Yahweh, and Yahweh had offered him shalom, offered him peace, when he shouldn't have gotten peace. So Gideon picks himself up off the ground, I'm imagining. He's probably just like laying prostrate because that's what people did when they saw God. Uh, and with exceeding gratefulness, he builds an altar to God to commemorate this incredible encounter. He doesn't want to forget this. He wants this to be something that people know happened. Uh, so he builds this altar, and he calls the altar uh, Yahweh Shalom, or the, the Lord is peace. And I, I just love that story. I think it's a great story. I, but I, I just think it, as we close here, I just want to ask us some questions about well, why is this story in the Bible? What is God trying to communicate to us as he's showing this story to us. Well, like every Bible, I mean every story in the Bible, God's encounter with Gideon is being told here to hint at, at another story. It's being told to hint at the long-awaited yet coming Messiah. So through this story, God is giving us insight into his own character uh, and his own determination to accomplish the plan that he had set forth to save his people. You remember, Yahweh had created everything to be a certain way. There was a way it ought to be. And he saw that that way was good. And he doesn't have a rival. Like, nobody could confront him on that. But Adam and Eve, in their pride, and we, in our pride, we wanted our own way. We wanted the way that we thought it should be. So God kept the promise that he had made to Adam and Eve, and he cursed us. Our sin caused everything no longer to function as it ought to. But within that curse that God pronounced on Adam and Eve, the holy God of the universe whose purity would not allow him to stand in the presence of fleshly sinners initiated a plan that day to save one day using his very own son wrapped in that same broken flesh that he might die in our place and make atonement for our sins to, to give us peace. That's the gospel. Romans 5, 1 says it like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace the gospel gives us is intended for us to experience today. And I think this story helps us to know that. In the midst of your chaos, in the brokenness of your relationships, in the concerns that you have about your health and your future, in the weariness you feel in your soul, Yahweh Shalom offers peace to you today, right now, through Jesus, his son. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul told the church in Philippi how to experience this peace. Maybe you could jot this down and look at it later. But Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, Paul, Paul told the Philippian church this, Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be trying to make peace in all the circumstances in your life. Don't be, don't be fretting yourself over this stuff. But, so instead, in everything, by prayer 
and supplication. It means like petitions to the Lord. So by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So there's an attitude. There's a way that we do these prayers and supplication. Let your requests, let the issues that are going on in your life that you're afraid of, that you're concerned about, that you can't figure out how to just make be in order and rest. Um, let those requests be made known to God, to Yahweh, to Sh Yahweh Shalom. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, all the ways that you think that you can figure this out, it surpasses all that. This is what the peace of God will do for you. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I think of that as, as like rails on the interstate. They just protect us. They keep us within this path that we're going down. So the peace of God comes, puts a guard on our heart, puts a guard on our mind, and it helps us to keep going down the path toward Jesus Christ. And this peace is for our benefit, for your benefit now. It's a peace that can't be fully realized, admittedly. We're not going to fully be peaceful and at rest the way we, meant, we were meant to be here on this earth. Um, we'll do that one day when Jesus comes. On that day, our hearts, our minds, they're not going to need guardrails. Uh, Yahweh Shalom will return that day, and everything will be returned back to the way it ought to be. Everything will be brought back to order. Harmony will be restored. Our souls will finally be at rest. Each of us satisfied with simply enjoying Him and the world He created, free from anxiety. Oh, I want to be free from anxiety or worry about the future. And we'll just be free to give God glory for all eternity. I want that. And, and as you guys are, you know, y'all have several, several turns down the bend for me. Uh, you're closer to glory than you've ever been in your lives. And that peace is it's like you can almost taste it, like it's coming for you. Um, but you don't have to only wait for the peace for, that's coming from that day. You can experience peace now. You can bring your requests to the Lord. You can trust in Him. Your, your heart and your mind can be guarded by Him. Uh, so I want to pray for us in that way. And then I want to close our time by singing a hymn together. Um, that just will put our confidence in the right place. So let's pray and then we'll sing. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the richness that is found there. Thank you for these, these stories. Lord, they're, they're human stories. They're stories that we can place our own lives in and feel them touch them. Um, Lord, so thank you for your word. Lord, we want to we know your word more. Uh, God, we want to feast on your word. Lord, because when we do that, we get peace. Lord, I pray that this morning, uh, this exchange of you through your word to your people is bringing peace right now, God. Um, Lord, there are many circumstances. I couldn't possibly pretend to know what all is represented, what all the difficulty, what all the chaos, what all the unrest is represented in this room, Lord, but you know, you know every single one of these ladies, and you know their situation, and you know uh, the, the specific ways that peace eludes them, at least in their own perspective, Lord, and so I pray now as we sing this song, Lord, would you minister your peace to them, uh, Lord, would you help them to be reminded that the peace of Christ is theirs, Lord, Jesus has died for them, they don't have to be afraid, Lord, peace has been given to them. Lord, and you are with them. Your son is with them. Your spirit is with them. Lord, so they can face anything that's coming this afternoon or tomorrow or next month. They can face those things. They can face their relationships that are difficult. 
Lord, they can walk around with their ailing bodies, Lord, and they can, they can trust you. They can be at peace. They can have peace in their souls. Lord, so we pray for that, Lord. Strengthen these ladies in your peace, I pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. We love you. Amen. All right, let's sing together. Y'all want to stand up with me? I'm going to turn this mic off because I don't know how loud.